Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Livebook version 0.8. It had a release, and that release was timed with Bumblebee. And Bumblebee kind of overshadowed all the cool stuff that happened in Livebook. But there was a blog post that was created to highlight some of the things that happened in Livebook itself. And we wanted to just touch on some of those because they really are cool. And people are using Livebook, obviously, for things other than Bumblebee. There's a new mechanism for tracking how cells depend on each other. So when you have a lecture cell and you have the sequence of cells, previously, if you made a change to anything upstream, anything before a current cell, it would just assume everything after it is dirty and needs to be reevaluated. Now it's a little bit more intelligent where it is able to detect if it needs to rerun and reevaluate a cell. If you have some of those cells that are doing expensive operations like processing a large set of data or something like that, that can save a lot of time, especially if it's not related to a change you made up higher with a config or something. I bet the way that works is by checking what variables are in binding. Have, have you guys ever used binding when you're trying to like debug something? I have not. Yeah, yeah. Next next time you're in an IEX session, which is also not very often for me, but <laughs> when you're in an IEX session, you've done your DBG, you know, there, just type in like binding. And that's kind of what DBG is like exposing for you too. It's it's just telling you what's in the current binding, but binding itself is also a, a function. So it, it just tells you what variables are, are in there and uh, what their values are. And so I bet that's what they're doing here now. So instead of just a linear, you know, kind of track of what was everything prior to this. Now they're actually checking what's in the binding. And if the binding is in, in this cell and it wasn't, and it wasn't in the last cell, then don't worry about the last cell, that kind of stuff. But binding is a pretty cool trick. Another part of this live book release is that doc tests are actually supported. This comes back to the idea that you could actually be developing your code in live book that you might end up copying out into a project. And with that, you can have doc tests in your kind of comments in your code. And when you execute and evaluate a cell, it will actually run the doc tests, which and just give you the little output that they executed, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I also saw that math equations are now rendered in a little pop up documentation. So that's pretty cool if you're into writing big equations and get a nice rendering. Another one which we obviously saw with Bumblebee was the ability to do image support, the new kino.input.image, which lets people upload an image. And, you know, this was part of the image classification example where you drop in a picture of a cat and they would say, this is a cat. But this is also usable for other things. What's really cool is it supports like drag and drop too. So you can drop a, an image in and maybe I want to play with something like image magic where I'm doing some image processing and I want to see, you know, how am I going to be doing this and try out these different options. You can do all that very easily in Livebook. Another new thing in, in Livebook, and I kind of wish that IEX had this too. <laughs> it's kind of hard to do this in terminals though, but large structured data like JSON or some big structs can be rendered in a collapsible tree making it easier to navigate. And if I recall correctly, I think this was merged in from some uh, SpawnFest contribution. So that's, that's, that's pretty cool. So you inspect some, yeah, some huge tree and it's just like three times the size of your monitor or something, all that scrolling to go find what you're looking for. I think it starts collapsed or maybe doesn't. Either way, you got the plus buttons now next to your elements, collapse or expand those elements. So you can uh, focus on what you're looking for in there. I love it. That's a good contribution. 
Yeah, you're right. That was from SpawnFest. Now, if we can get that in terminals, that would be great too. <laughs> like an IEX. And also in Livebook, there was the neural network smart cell, which Bumblebee totally relied on. That's a neat addition. You know, he's just acknowledging that, hey, there is a new smart cell type that does this. That's cool. Yeah, I also saw that there's a Slack smart cell. So you can do things like send yourself notifications when something completes or some automation happens. I'm a fan of Slack notifications. Um, no, I'm not. I get way too many Slack notifications. What am I talking about? <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're almost done here. So there's, I mean, there's so much going on in Livebook here, but here's another one. The geocoding in Map Smart Cell also got smarter. So today you can give it latitude and longitude, but hardly anybody thinks in latitude and longitudes. So now it's smarter because it can accept names of countries, cities, states, streets. And yeah, I, I tend to think in those, <laughs> those terms on a map. So that's going to be mighty helpful. There was a lot more in this live book release and in the blog post. So I definitely suggest people check out the blog post because it has lots of videos and examples and pictures to really help understand what these things are. So it's very cool. And I'm just glad that we could pause and celebrate what Livebook itself got in addition to what Bumblebee was bringing and all of the excitement around that. All right. So not that we're trying to avoid Bumblebee and NX and all that kind of stuff, because there's another update about NX. There's a, a new feature called Lazy Transfers. I'm just going to quote Jose that talked about this. It says, usually after you compile a neural network with EXLA, all the neural network parameters must be transferred to the GPU on invocation, which means that everything is allocated up front, which is undesired if you don't have like 10 gigabyte GPUs lying around. So with lazy transfers, we transfer the data as it's necessary. So this means the network will might take a bit longer to run, like about 10 to 20% slower. But we saw it reduce memory usage by 50% on larger models, such as stable diffusion. All right, end quote there. So yeah, that's pretty cool. In Elixir terms for me, it's like, oh, yeah, or we have implemented streams versus enum, right? <laughs> <laughs> so cool. So if you're wondering how do I use it, he says this, in the future, we will expose this functionality as a flag in Kino.Bumblebee. All right, so look out for Kino.Bumblebee updates in the future for using that flag. This is probably helpful for a lot of folks that are just like, man, I'm just on my puny little laptop. I want to stable diffuse some stuff or whatever. And uh, you don't have those big expensive $1,000 GPUs to run this stuff. So this is going to be helpful for a lot of those kinds of situations. So I'm excited. I think in particular, it's helpful for that lower RAM available. Like if you have dedicated hardware, yeah, just take advantage of all of it and just go. I'm playing with it on my machine. Then maybe I don't have 10 gigabytes of video RAM available right now. So like maybe it can do it in chunks and maybe do four gigabytes at a time or something. You guys don't have a rack of the latest GPUs sitting in your house? <laughs> I, I would try. I tried. <laughs> I can't get, can't get them. I was trying to get the latest AMD ones, which I know just by seeing AMD, I'm going to, I'm already pigeonholing myself into trouble for GPU stuff. But yeah, I couldn't, couldn't get the latest one, the XTX one with 20 gigs. A little note here while we're talking about it, though, there is a benefit here for Macs, the new Apple Silicon one, because on normal non-Mac laptops, the memory, if you don't have like a GPU, uh, you can do these operations on your CPU, all right? It's slower and it'll use the memory on your laptop, which is great. So if you have a lot of memory there, that's great. Or if you don't have a lot of video RAM memory, then you're kind of kaput, right? A, a normal amount on, on memory... Video memory memory for laptops is, I don't know, like 
four or eight uh, gig maybe. And that's, that's high end. A lot of them can be smaller, but with Macs, they have a unified memory bit there, right? So that means the GPU and the CPU can, can access the same thing. So that whole number there, you're probably used to seeing something like 16 gig, maybe 64 if you really splurged, even though you're doing these operations on the CPU there, it can access all of that memory. So all that to say is, is that that unified memory architecture that they keep on talking about in all their marketing spiel actually does kind of make a difference from when you're doing these, these kind of large model operations like stable diffusion. Anyway, sorry, a little detail on that, but it, it's kind of nice. If you got a, a Mac, you can maybe access more of this stuff than you, than you thought you could. Well, if you follow gRPC and you're using it in Elixir, good news for you. It looks like there's a PR that's been recently merged to add support to Mint. So previously you were stuck to using the gun library in Erlang. I know there might have been some situations or issues there, and there just was there was it just wasn't adaptable. You couldn't switch out and use whatever HTTP library you wanted to use. And so that's finally gone in. We'll leave a link in the show notes if you're interested. And next up. Phoenix Live Storybook will gain a visual regression testing endpoint in version 0.5.0. So this renders a kitchen sink-like view of all of your components. You might do some automated testing that posts screenshots of before and after your tests. And so you can see, did my recent change change the way things were being rendered in a way that I didn't want? (laughs) So that's a nice little feature to do that visual image diffing. Yeah, you could even take that further. I think you can like highlight the differences with like image magic to really point it out and see where the differences are. That's pretty cool. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, Andrea Leopardi continues his Proto Hackers video challenge where he's solving some different networking challenges using Elixir. Since last time we re-recorded, he's posted two more videos, fourth and fifth videos. So his fourth video is about some TCP-based chat room protocols. I skimmed through some of it. So he starts off the video doing some project cleanup and shares some nice tips and explains why he makes those changes. So it's always cool to see how someone thinks when they're refactoring some things. But it's also lots of use of Gen TCP. So if you've ever been curious about what it's like to use that, his fourth video is a good one for for that. If you're interested in UDP, his fifth video is going to have a lot of details on that. His fifth video implements the unusual database program problem and uses UDP to access a key store value. So lots of good like principles in here. This has been a very interesting video series so far. So I'm very thankful for Andrea to to record these and release them. This has been really good. Yeah, those have been really fun to watch. And it's just sometimes it's fun to watch other people, how they work and what, you know, what things they do, little tips and tricks you can pick up. Record me working on something and just like... How many things can I fiddle with on the desk and annoying little things, annoying mannerisms, <laughs> like throwing things? How, how angry do I get at a test? <laughs> Fly.io. It's a great place to run Elixir apps with many global regions, a private network that makes it easy to cluster your app and a powerful CLI. It's something you should really try out. Experience it for yourself at fly.io. Next up. A little bit of LiveView native news. It sounds like they've merged a large chunk of their core work that they've been working on, and they're now moved on to implementing lists of views. We'll have a PR that shows some of the notes and things that they've been working on with Swift UI, with views and checkboxes and what's been completed. And it's exciting to see all the progress that's been made. Yeah, this PR is, you know, they're using GitHub formatted markdown to have checkboxes 
to give progress of what's been done. And it is a large list when you think about all the work that has to go into supporting these different types of Swift UI views. It's great, though, because it gives you that sense of they've got a lot done, but there's a lot to do. I think it's neat to see that this is still going on. So if you're wondering what we're talking about, what is LiveView Native? Well, it's a project that was started by Dockyard. It renders an HTML-like structure that's using LiveView to render it on the server that a mobile runtime interprets and turns into natively rendered components. And Brian Cartarella presented on this in his keynote during the ElixirConf 2022 conference. So I'm excited to see continued work there. That was like one of the really big, exciting things from the conference. There's always that big thing, huh? I think that was it this year. Still weird to think that it's 2023 already. I know. All right. And next up, Membrane Core has a release candidate for a new 1.0 version that they're getting ready. So it includes a number of improvements and enhancements along with some breaking changes. I'm just really happy to see this major milestone being reached. I think it's really neat that they've continued to work on the project. It's been several years now in the making, but they're reaching this milestone where they're about to commit to a 1.0 release. So that's exciting. It was about a year ago, I think, when a bunch of Elixir libraries decided to <laughs> go ahead and flip the switch over to 1.0. <laughs> there were some threads that went around. It's like, why is everything pre 1.0? Can't commit to something? And they're like, no, we're, we're, we're just kind of done. We just didn't do it. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Still works, yeah. Yes. <laughs> still, still works, still good. It is stable, just didn't do the, the 1.0 release. All right, moving on. Erlang Solutions released a blog post, which was interesting. As a person that has worked in FinTech a lot, their blog post covers five Erlang and Elixir use cases in FinTech. And this is kind of like major FinTechs, right? These aren't small little outfit FinTechs, startup FinTechs. These are big FinTechs. <laughs> so if you're looking for case studies to back up your case for using Elixir, you should go check out this blog post. So here's some examples. They have a case study on Vocalink, Solaris Bank, Goldman Sachs, and uh, some up. Anyways, Goldman Sachs definitely stood out. I was like, oh, well, they're, that's, that's enormous. <laughs> that's enormous. Honestly, I haven't heard of the other ones, but these are still going to be good case studies for understanding their use in fintech, those highly stable, highly regulated kind of environments and how Elixir and Erlang are trusted solutions for that. Next up, if you're interested, ElixirConf EU 2023 is coming in April 20th through the 21st. It'll be in Lisbon, Portugal. And it sounds like it's going to be a hybrid conference, so you'll be able to join locally or remotely. We'll drop a link, but it's elixirconf.eu, so check it out if you're interested. And next, this is not so much Elixir, but this is part of the developer ecosystem, and it's relevant for a lot of people who use Elixir because it may impact them. So if you're impacted, this is CircleCI. If you're a CircleCI user, you've probably already been notified by CircleCI. But there was a breach where hackers broke in and stole encryption keys and customer secrets. And in some cases, I believe they were even accessing customer source code. So quoting from the TechCrunch article, which we have linked in the show notes, says the company said in a detailed blog post on Friday that it identified the intruder's initial point of access as an employee's laptop that was compromised with malware, allowing the theft of session tokens used to keep the employees logged in to certain applications, even though their access was protected by two-factor authentication, they subverted that by getting an active session token. 
And Zuber said that while customer data was encrypted, the cyber criminals also obtained the encryption keys. So that doesn't really help because they could just decrypt the customer data. And they said, quote, we encourage customers who have yet to take action to do so in order to prevent unauthorized access to third-party systems and stores. In the article, it also points out that several customers have already informed CircleCI of unauthorized access to their systems. So it is being exploited actively. So by the time you've heard this, may even be over in in terms of uh, it's too late to react now. (laughs) It's too late. You're hacked. (laughs) But it is a reminder. So one of the things I thought of when I read this is as developers, I know personally, I don't like it when my company gives me a laptop and says, this is the laptop you use. Don't you put anything personal on this and it's super locked down and, you know, anything personal. So I, I was always like carrying around two laptops, right? So I'd have like Everything on my personal laptop sitting right next to me with my work laptop. And I just, I, I, oh, that's so dumb. But like, you see why. Like, it is examples like this where we see why companies have these types of policies. It's a reminder just to be aware, right, that we interact with many different systems and every system represents a surface area that could be a problem for us and our company. So it's important for us as the developers who are the ones who are really on the forefront of what's happening with our software, what's coming into the company through our software, through our APIs, through our third-party systems, uh, that we need to make good and reasonable efforts to try and be careful with those things. So an action item for you on this then, dear listener, is is that if you're using CircleCI, and this goes for any system that comes breached like this, right? You should rotate your API keys. You should rotate all the secrets that you have in there. So Oban comes to mind. You, oftentimes when you install, if you use Oban, you have to have an API key in your CI system for it to pull down and add the repo and all that. So go go rotate that. Go rotate all the other secrets that you stuck in there. Now's a good time. It's those secrets like uh, maybe accessing S3 buckets and things like that. Yeah. You know, it's like got to rotate all of that. It's just, it's a lot. That sounds really fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last up. Totally not Elixir related, but a tiny PSA for those that are writing tests, tests that use external or they don't have to use external, but reference the external things. Normally in test environments, you expect it to be completely local unless you've explicitly marked, you know, this one as hitting an external resource. So to ensure that you're hitting internal resources and not accidentally exposing something to an external resource, there are actual RFCs saying that these are specifically reserved for testing purposes. So for example, if you're trying to test an adapter and it doesn't really hit anywhere, but maybe it could if something's misconfigured, use example.com as the domain or or example.net or .org, whatever your preference is. But example.com is definitely reserved for testing purposes and it goes nowhere. This is a protected domain. It can't be used for anything else. It's not like somebody can buy it one day and everyone starts <laughs> sending them stuff. And it's protected by RFC 2606. That also implies that emails. So if you're ever testing with emails, sometimes you might do like, you know, foobear at mycompany.com or something like that. And then one day you get an email that says this is an integration test. You should not get this. <laughs> There is a way to avoid that, and that's using those protected domains. So use foobear at example.com, and you'll uh, you'll forever be assured that that will not actually send a real email that lands anywhere in case it's misconfigured. All right, last little tip on that. Likewise, when testing with IP addresses, if you're lower level like that, 
there is another protected CIDR block for that kind of stuff too. And it's 192.0.2 and all the junk under there is a protected block. So you're guaranteed to never actually go outside of, uh, in, into the real, into the real world with that. So tiny PSA for those writing tests that hit external things. Use example.com and your emails and your web addresses and 192.0.2 for your IPs. And that's it. That's all you get. That's all your PSA for me. And that's it for the news. Thank you.